Well, hello and welcome to Good Questions, Real Answers. I'm Kimberly with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is Monty Judah, our director. We're so glad you joined us today. We have a lot of topics to cover today, Monty, so we'll jump right in and get started. Very good. Um, Our first question comes from Sonia, and she has a question about the relevance of the scripture, Amos 1, 6, to the current situation in Israel. All right. I'm prepared for this, so I got the verse here ready to go. So reading from Amos chapter 1, verse 6, it reads as follows. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have carried away into exile an entire deportation to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire against the wall of Gaza and will devour its fortresses. Given the present war with Israel, with Hamas, this verse stands out as almost a verbatim description of what we see going on in Gaza with Israel. Hamas coming out of Gaza came over killed many Jewish people, took many captives, went back into Gaza. Israel is now attacking Gaza, destroying their fortresses, destroying their tunnel system and where they're keeping the hostages. And as we speak in real time, I pray by the time this is broadcast, the hostages are home. But in real time at the moment, the hostages are still taken captive. Israel is still trying to recover them and defeat Hamas. Is this the exact fulfillment of what we see going on? Boy, this is a very good descriptor of what we see going on. Uh, Amos was actually talking about the Philistines, and the Philistines used to be down in that area as well. There were similar issues historically in the same way. And Israel has been in the business of having destroyed the fortresses of Gaza in the past, historically. And now here we are today. And so you could say history is repeating itself, so to speak. Boy, the Bible is the living word of God. And we find ourselves in these days where those are living words to what we're facing today. I guess that's what I would say with regard to it. The The word of God is alive and powerful, and it's able to understand things that are happening in our world. Even today. Even to this day. Amen. Well, Sonia, thank you for that. We found that very interesting and intriguing, looking that scripture up for ourselves and relating that to what's happening today. So thank you again for that and keep watching, giving those good questions to us. All right, we have a question from Donna. And Donna says she has a Christian friend that recently came out and said that she was an anti-Zionist. She said the friend is extremely critical of Israel, particularly over the current war, but also claim that he's not anti-Semitic. So she asked, can Monty explain if it's possible to be anti-Zionist without being anti-Semitic? The short answer is absolutely not. Zionism is the belief that there is a Jewish homeland that belongs to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel, and it was the land that was promised to Abraham by God. The Zionist movement is about reestablishing the homeland for Israel. The modern nation of Israel is the outworking of that. The Jewish people live there. The people of Israel live there. If you're going to be anti-Zionist, you're going to say that what God promised to Abraham is not true, 
And when the prophet specifically talked about bringing the, the exiles of Israel back from the nations to live in the land that he promised to the fathers, that that's not true. Right. You're in far bigger trouble saying that than you are just being anti-Semitic. You are definitely being anti-Semitic because the definition of anti-Semitic is to be opposed to any person living in that land. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is going to shock you. You can be anti-Semitic against Palestinians. Yes. You can be anti-Semitic against any person who's living in that land. Mm -hmm. The Semitic peoples are the people of that land. So yes. as Zionism is about the land, Semitic is about the land. You can't separate those two out. They, they, they are exactly the same thing. So anybody that would say to me, well, I'm, anti, I'm, I'm against the nation of Israel. I want to be nice here, but you're in deep trouble with the God of Israel when mm -hmm. you do that. And you do not get to separate out what God has promised and said about that land versus what he said about that people. He gave that land to those people, yes. to the people of Israel. And other people from other nations are free to live there if they want to live in peace and believe in the God of Israel. And the idea that Jews should not be in that land is nonsense. And it is the grand lie yes. from the enemy. And it's part of the reason why we have the conflict in the world today. Indeed. Jerusalem truly is the center of the world in this regard. Yes. Always. It reminds me too of the opposite where I would want to be standing and hope that I do stand is with Genesis 12, 3. If I will curse those who curse you, bless those who bless you, Israel. And so, boy, I would I rather be standing on that side. Of I things. don't think you're going to be successful standing before God saying, well, God, I know you promised it to them, but I don't think they deserve it. No, I don't think he will shine on that. Uh, don't, don't go there. No. No, I'd rather bless them right. than curse them. All right. Thank you for that question. This one is from Maya. It's a little bit intricate here. She's also leading a Bible study, and they are using the Revealing Revelation series. They're on episode 11, where you talk about the angel Michael restraining evil that could befall Israel, that is, until he is called to heaven and Satan is cast down to earth. Her question, actually, she has two, but her question is, with the events having begun in Israel on October 7th, which were very evil, does that mean that this has happened or is it referring to an even greater evil toward Israel? And then her second question is, where do you think we are currently on the timeline of Revelation? Okay, so we believe that Michael is the archangel, is the prince of Israel. He's protecting Israel from evil and he presently is on the earth doing that job. He is removed. The re he restrains evil. He's removed so there's no more restraint of evil against Israel at the start of the Great Tribulation. The reason he's removed is he goes up into heaven, and this is what the scripture goes on to say. He then leads the armies of heaven to throw Satan out of heaven, at which point Satan is cast down to the air. He's called the prince of the air, down to the earth. And he begins to then oppress the saints in the Great Tribulation. Yes. The great trauma of the Great Tribulation, the time of distress is never the world has ever seen, is primarily caused because we have Satan who's been kicked out of heaven. He's down here with us. 
And he's trying to oppress the saints and do harm yes. to those that belong to the Lord. And the world's never experienced that before. And so that's the reason why that trauma is described in that way. Michael the archangel goes up. He usually is at the right hand. By the way, the Messiah is the right hand. So how does that work out? How does Michael sit at the right hand and the Messiah sits? At the start of the Great Tribulation, I've, I've described to you how Michael is pulled up from the earth, goes up to heaven to, to do the battle. That's also the same moment that Yeshua stands from the seat at the right hand of the Almighty, and he begins to, the Messiah begins to rule in heaven. Mm -hmm. Satan has been cast out. He, he has complete rule of heaven now at this point. The coming of the Lord is when the Messiah comes to the earth to have complete rule of this place too, yes. in which Satan is totally and completely defeated. Michael kicks him out of heaven, but the Messiah destroys him here. Amen. There's a lot that goes into it. And I know this is picturesque. We're talking about things in the heavens that are taking place. But the book of Revelation gives us references to this in various places. And if you pull all of it together, the book of Daniel and other references to this, we will see the Ancient of Days coming, yes. power, great glory to establish his kingdom. Praise the Lord. But there's this period of time called the Great Tribulation where the restrainer's out of the way and we have to deal with Hasatan at that point. Wow. Not looking forward to that, but Not I a good, the Lord will but, carry us through. <laughs> but we're going to win in the end. Amen. That's the part I'm looking forward to. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a follow-up question from Alice. She's the lady that asked us the question about the difference between the Feast of Tabernacles and the Marriage Supper of yes. the Lamb. Yeah. She has a follow-up okay. question. She thanks us for answering her question on air. Okay. And she says, so Revelation 19.9 is talking about the marriage supper. Right. What is it? When does it happen? What does it mean? Blessed are those who through Messiah enter into the kingdom to spend eternity with him. Well, the marriage supper of the lamb is an event in the kingdom once the kingdom is established. Mm -hmm. And the reference that you just gave to is blessed are those who get to make it to that. Yes. Blessed are those who get to go to the kingdom, you know, as opposed to the others. That's so good. And at, I think her original question was, What's the comparison to the Feast of Tabernacles? Feast yeah. of Tabernacles is a specific commanded feast. We know that's the first event at the coming of the Lord, the first feast that will be observed. But the marriage feast of the Lamb is like, I think that's that's going to be like the first year. Mm. You know, the activities. I mean, can you imagine being in the kingdom the first year, go through all the holidays, rebuilding the temple, the new day of declaration, you know, all the incredible things that will happen in that first yeah. year in the kingdom. And I think it will be called the marriage supper of the lamb. It, it'll be a, a great celebration. That's awesome. Yeah. So well, hopefully Alice, that, that yeah. but that verse there in Revelation is talking about that event, that, that happy event in the mm -hmm. kingdom. Yes. And we all can't wait to be there. Amen. Yes. So there you go, Alice. There's your follow-up answer to that question. Okay, now this question just made me laugh out loud when I read it at my desk. This question is from Tim, and he says, he's talking about Yochebel and being the mother of Moses. And he says, you know, if Yochebel is the 70th person to go into Egypt, he says, correct me if I'm wrong. He says, but Dinah was pregnant with her, with Yochebel on the trip to Egypt. 
Israel was in Egypt 400 years. Moses led the people out at age 80. Was Yochebel 320 years old when she gave birth to Moses? And then he had, in all capital letters, help. <laughs> so he had well, some understanding with this. All right. So we're talking about the chronology of the children of Israel being in Egypt. First of all, let's get the chronology correct. They weren't there 400 years. Moses makes reference to the day they left as 430 years to the day. That wasn't the day they came into Egypt. That's going back to the day in Genesis 15 when God prophesied to Abraham that his descendants would go down to Egypt and then come out. He's actually making reference to it's 430 years to the day that we're coming out as God prophesied to Abraham. So what was the actual time frame they were down there? Well, you have the life of Abraham, you have the life of Isaac, you have the life of Jacob, okay? Those are a couple of hundred years almost. Yes. Then you get to where Yoshebel is born there. She marries her nephew, so she's like another generation. What was the time frame that God had said there would be in Egypt? Four generations. The generation that came after the 70, that went down. Mm -hmm. There were four of them. In fact, the fourth generation that was down there, they're the generation that came out of Egypt. They were a prophesied generation. The fourth generation was prophesied to come out of Egypt, and that's what you have. It's not 400 years. It's the life of four generations. Now, how long do we think that was? I, I don't have the exact number, but we're talking something just over 200 years. Okay. So we think Yoshebel was up there in years. Yes. That you add a generation and then having a long life to her. She, she was clearly old, more than 100 years old yes. when she gave birth. The exact numbers, I don't have the chronology in front of me. I'm sure it, it could be worked out. But that's the confusing part. Yes. People hear about the 400 years, the 430 years. No, that's not the time frame they were in Egypt. That was the time of the prophecy that said they would come out. But there were only four generations down there. Okay. Well, Tim, we hope that answers your question and certainly hopes you figure out uh, that Yoshebel was not probably 320 years old when she gave birth. At least as a woman, I hope not. <laughs> yeah. But she was older than question. Sarah. There's no question. Yes. She was older than Sarah. And that's, that's what we make reference yes. to. Interesting question to think about. It, it was a, yes. a miracle birth for Moses. Amen. <laughs> All right. Well, this question is from Chris. And the question is about Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Mm -hmm. He says that terrifies mm -hmm. when, she, when she thinks about that. If salvation is not based on obeying God's commandments, then what in the world did these apparent spirit-filled Christians do that warrants the judgment that this passage speaks of? Salvation is based on faith, yes. period. End of statement. You can be religious and not have faith, and you're in trouble with God. Indeed. And that happens more frequently than people understand. This is one of the reasons why I stress to people, you need to have the reasons why you believe. If you're accepting the idea that Yeshua is the Messiah and that he's salvation and that you do this little prayer thing, you might be doing that based on hearsay. You've heard other people say that. There's no reason why you want to disagree. You're just going along with what other people said. So are you really believing in God? No, you're believing in what you heard. Mm -hmm. you heard a, you're believing in other people. 
let's say that you make a decision. I'm, I'm clearly going to make a decision. Now you're presumptively deciding. Presumption and hearsay are not faith. Faith is a very real thing in the scripture. That, is, that kind of faith is when you believe in, in the person. You and I know each other a little bit. Yes. And would you say that you believe me? Yes. Okay. And why would you say you do that? You've been around me. You've, you've seen me do various things. Yes. I've seen you do things. We've done some things together. I've demonstrated to you reasons why you can trust me. Yes. Therefore, you believe me. Right. Well, if you don't have any promises from God, if you don't believe in what God has said, you don't have a relationship with him. You don't, you don't believe in anything. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. When I say to the average Christian, I say, do you believe in Jesus? He says, oh, yes, yes, I definitely believe in Jesus. I said, why? Mm-hmm. What is it that, that, that God has done that causes you to believe in him? Well, he knows, he acknowledges things that, that are said about him. Well, I said, well, you're believing in everything that what everybody believes about him. I said, why, why do you believe in him that you think will receive salvation? That's a very important question. It's got to be answered by a believer. And that's essentially what Yeshua is talking about in Matthew 7. We're going to have a bunch of people running around that are extremely religious, very active with the believing community, and yet inside of them, they don't really know the Lord, and they're not believing him. And when they go to you, ask them, well, can you tell me one promise that God has given to you? They can't cite one. They can't cite one. Faith is this mystical thing out here. They know it's not seen. Faith comes by hearing, but they haven't got the connection. Well, hearing what? Hearing what God has said. God has said, I am the Lord, your God. Do you believe that? Or are you just acknowledging that he's the God of everybody? Well, it's a big difference between I, I think there's a God out there versus no, I believe he's my God. Yes. Because the moment you believe that he's your God, then you're going to listen to what he says and he'll say things like, I want you to obey me. And if you demonstrate obedience based on that, now your faith is real. It's working. Mm-hmm. Uh, James said, faith without works is dead. And I'm not saying that that's salvation by works. I'm saying you get the real faith that moves you, motivates you, and you learn more about, and you build on that relationship. And that relationship results in activities with God. You obey what the Lord has said. It it changes your life as a result. That's real faith. That's the faith that leads to salvation. Matthew 7, verses 21 and through there. It's talking about those that are faking it. And by the way, you can fake it. Yes. I remember in my own personal Baptist church experience, <laughs> they brought this hotshot evangelist in, and he preached up a storm, and the head of the deacons got saved. Hmm. The head of the deacons and the whole church got saved. He wow. went down to the front, and he said, I've never known the Lord. Wow. He had been made head of the deacons. He was a, he was a good man. Hmm. He had participated completely in everything that was going on. All the others had yielded to his leadership. He was a good man. Mm-hmm. But in his heart, he didn't know the Lord until that moment. And boy, that raises a question. You know, everybody should be examining their heart. Do you really know the Lord? 
Or are you just a religious person going through the same religious activity? Yeah. You don't want to know why Muslims are Muslims? Why? Because they were born in a Muslim land and that's the religion they have there. You want to know why we have a lot of evangelical Christians in America? Because that's what we have in America, and most of America is of that faith. Now, do those guys that are Muslims, do they really believe in God? Well, you'd have to ask why. Yeah. How about the rest of us? Do we really believe in God? Do we really know the Lord? Or are we caught up in the American culture and the activities because the bulk of our citizenry and our neighbors have of this expression of faith and we're just fitting in with everybody? Or do we really know the Lord? That is what the Messiah is warning against. Wow. Scary thought. It is. Something like you said, everyone really needs to examine I'll, their I'll, heart. I'll share with you personally, Kimberly. When I meet a new person, one of the first questions I got is, I need to have a conversation to see if this person really knows the Lord. I need to find a way to get steer the conversation. I need to hear their testimony that they know the Lord because I no longer... Hey, if you just come in and show up and you're part of what's going on, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a believer yet. I need to talk to you and find out why, why are you here and who do you believe in? Yes. Something very important for all of us, I think. All of us. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you mm -hmm. for that. Um, Brian has a question. Okay. He's also been thinking about the Millennial Kingdom. Okay. And wonders, will we observe Yom Kippur in the Millennial Kingdom? Yes, I believe that we'll observe all the commandments of the Lord in the kingdom, including all of the feasts of the Lord, including Yom Kippur. All of that is in the scripture, the Messiah is going to teach it, and we'll all observe it. Now, maybe you might ask the question, well, what are we supposed to get out of Yom Kippur? A part of Yom Kippur is a remembrance of when God had to judge the whole world. Yes. And by the way, that's an important thing for us to remember. We're supposed to be remembering God judged the whole world with the flood. Yes. And when we get into the kingdom, we need to recognize that God did have to judge his enemies. So it will be more of a memorial? Yeah, a remembrance. A remembrance? All, all of the feasts take on the significance of a remembrance of something. Mm -hmm. uh, significant things that God did, part of our spiritual history and understanding. I see. Now, what the implications are into the kingdom and how we manifest future things with it, I'm not sure. I'm not in the kingdom yet. I haven't quite figured. I haven't heard the Messiah's Torah teaching in the kingdom yet. Yes. Maybe we'll yes. learn some new things. We're looking forward to that. Amen. Yes. Okay. We have just enough time for a, a last question. Okay. And this question is going to sort of be an introductory question for more to come at a later time. We've had a lot of questions come in since your January Yavo magazine edition that talked about the Zadok calendar, yes. the priestly calendar. So here is the first question. Many of these questions are about the changes of the feast dates from the traditional Hebrew calendar. Can you help our viewers to understand the, the change in the dates? Right. Okay, so let's just do a real quick review because part of the article I wrote kind of did this, but let's, so everybody's on the same page, so to speak. Today, the common calendar that we use is referred to as the Gregorian calendar. Pope Gregory mm -hmm. established the solar calendar that the Christian world uses, and the rest of the world kind of follows it. If you're going to deal with Western nations, this 
the calendar we use, January through December. However, the Jews have their own calendar, mm -hmm. and their calendar has two elements to it. The creation calendar starts in the fall and goes around to the fall, but the religious calendar starts in the springtime and goes mm -hmm. around to the springtime. And the religious calendar is based on the Feast of the Lord, beginning first with Passover and going all the way through Purim mm -hmm. in the winter and then back to Passover. That calendar, that Hebrew calendar, is the one that many of us messianics, when we stepped away from the standard Christian teaching of the faith, and we began to turn back to Moses and trying to understand all of the Torah and all the commandments and so forth, it was natural for us to jump on the, the calendar the Jewish people are using, which is the Hebrew calendar, to keep the Passover and the feast just like they do. Mm -hmm. Only to discover that, whoa, wait a minute, that calendar that the Jews are using is the one they brought back from Babylon. And so the dates and the calendar that Moses was referring to wasn't that calendar. Right. It wasn't the Babylonian calendar. And so there's a great question, well, what calendar was Moses referring to when he gave all this? Well, we have come to understand, and it's now become very popular to understand, this is the evidence that came from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, let me back up for a moment. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found many, many years ago. Yes. Big archaeological find, all these scrolls, all these books, you know, from Qumran. The government of Israel and the Department of Antiquities refused to allow any other scholar to see them or find out what was in them for more than 40 years. Wow. It's only in recent years that they, there was an effort to photograph all of the fragments before they were destroyed, yes. that some other scholars were able to spirit away a set of photographs. And they were then able to examine the, what's written in the scrolls, and they discovered, oh my goodness, there are many documents here that is from the Zadok priesthood. Yes. The Zadok priesthood is the first high priest with King David and King Solomon when the temple was built in Jerusalem. Yes. Now that predates Babylon. And they had a calendar that they used in the temple that originated back with Moses and Enoch gets involved in this and so forth. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is this. This Zadok calendar that we have come found out of the Dead Sea Scrolls predates the Hebrew Babylonian calendar. Yes. We believe it's the calendar that was actually being referenced when Moses gave the commandments of the feast. Now, we Messianics, we have made the transition from the Gregorian calendar yes. and made the transition from Christianity and the church, turning back to Moses. And so we've joined back with our Israeli brethren and our mm -hmm. Jewish brethren and only to discover, wait a minute, they don't have it quite right either. Mm -hmm. So let's get back to what is really right, what Moses really did. And we're fulfilling the prophecy that they will turn to Moses. This is Isaiah chapter 66. We will yes. turn back to Moses. So the Messianic movement right now, the leaders have been discussing this for some time. This year, we're making the transition. Yes. 
And this year, many Messianic leaders, now there's controversy with this, not every Messianic leader agrees, but there's a whole bunch of us, we've agreed, we're moving forward, we're going back to the priesthood calendar, the calendar that belonged to the temple in the days of King David and King Solomon. We're gonna predate the Babylonian calendar. Adding to the dementia of this, We've got this last generation word in the book of Revelation that says, come up out of Babylon, my people. Yes, it sure does. Well, part of that definition is stop doing things according to the Babylonian calendar, according to the Babylonian definition of things. So going to the Zadok calendar, going to the priesthood calendar is going back to mo- what Moses did. Yes. And, we're, and, and in the same way, we've transitioned from the Gregorian calendar, we're transitioning from the Babylonian calendar, the Jewish calendar, and we're now going back to the calendar that we believe really the Bible was based on. It's a solar-based calendar, yes. 364 days, very special dates. And the months in the Bible are numbered and the days are numbered. They don't use names for the months of the Bible. There are references to seasons. Mm-hmm. There are references to other things, but they're not given as the name of the month because right. that's the Zadok calendar was simply first month, second month, first day of first month, and so forth. Right. It's the other Babylonian calendars that give names and all. And they, actually, if you check into the names of the Hebrew calendar for the months, it's about Babylonian gods. Yes. Maybe we should not have be fooling with Babylonian gods. Amen to amen that. Amen and amen. So that's that's a quick answer <laughs> yes. for what that's all about. Well, thank you so much. And we are so excited about this. So all of you watching today, I encourage you to, if you don't have the January edition of Yavo, get that magazine quickly, electronically or on paper and read up on the Zadok calendar. We've got a list of references at the end of the article for you. You can also find those on our website. Join with us and find out about the Zadok Priestly calendar. We're just excited about it. And I might mention that coming up this springtime, there's going to be a, a open forum in which several people on the subject, we're going to be together answering questions about it, explaining more about it for the folks. Yes, and we're looking forward to that as well. And so today we have run out of time, sadly, but we thank you for joining us and we hope that you will like, comment, and share this video on your social media. And we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye for today. Shalom.